This is the Podcast for Democracy, a global conversation to encourage and support your activism. Produced by OPEN, the online progressive engagement network. Today, featuring a conversation with human rights advocate and technologist Sam Gregory, executive director of WITNESS, an organization that makes it possible for anyone, anywhere, to use video and technology to protect and defend human rights. Now here's your host, executive director of OPEN, Giovanna Negretti. You're the new executive director of WITNESS. Tell us about your journey at WITNESS, because you've been there for quite a while, haven't you? Yeah, so I've been at WITNESS uh, over 20 years, which in the terms of what we work on at WITNESS, video and technology is a long time and has seen multiple evolutions in terms of social media, cell phones, uh, mobile and live video. And I'm excited I'm coming into WITNESS as we really try and grapple with prevalence of video, right, as such a common mode of activism, but also some of the threats to video as a mode of activism and communication. So it's an exciting, but also kind of a challenging moment. I know there's a lot of technology threats. And I've been reading on your website about all the incredible work that you've been doing, particularly in the past five years about these technology threats, everything from misinformation and disinformation and the rise of AI. There's a particular strategy there that's interesting, a prepare, don't panic strategy that you've been preparing. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about how that developed. Sure. And I, and I think it's good to sort of put it in the big picture of WITNESS, which is, you know, we're an unusual organization and a lot of our work is very deep grounded work with human rights movements and activists around the world working on issues from land rights to police violence to war crimes, and then also making sure that they can share, you know, good practices to each other. But one of the things we realized about 10 years ago was that those activists weren't part of a lot of the conversations about the technology that was shaping their worlds. So people were filming on cell phones, but it was being taken down off platforms or they were filming on cell phones, but they had no way to protect their identity, for example, to blur their faces. So about 10 years ago, we really started thinking about the technology infrastructure very proactively. And one of the things that we were seeing was what we call shallow fakes, which was just you know, the persistence and the regular usage of people sharing, say, a miscontextualized video or a staged video sometimes to claim one thing was another thing. Pretty much everyone who listens to this podcast probably has seen one of those, right? Sometimes it's pretty innocuous. Sometimes it's something that's really inciting hate or violence or really deceiving people. And about five years ago, we started hearing about what we saw might be the next evolution on this, which was this idea of so-called deepfakes, right, which were being at the time, and this was early in this development of these AI-enabled technologies, being used primarily to target women. So they were being used in in a weaponized form to create um, non-consensual sexual images of women with much more ease than maybe had been possible before. But there was also this possibility that they were also going to really attack the sort of truth basis of the sort of types of videos that citizen journalists and activists share to prove that something happened. And so we started working on it really from what exactly as you described this prepare, don't panic perspective, because we saw a couple of things. One was, yes, there were terrible harms already happening that needed to be addressed right then, like gender based violence. But there was also a real sense that the hype around AI-generated media was out of proportion to the reality when it came to things like misinformation and disinformation, right? People weren't likely to be running into a deep fake on their social media feed, but all the media hype was, you know, you can't believe anything you see. And of course, the people whose accounts are challenged most by you can't believe what you see are, of course, rights activists, citizen journalists. And so we started from this prepare, don't panic frame to say what would happen if you tried to bring this global human rights, citizen journalism-led perspective into the discussion about this emerging technology, namely deep fakes and a broader field of what people call synthetic media. 
And I saw that you've done a lot of work in different countries, a lot of, uh, I don't know if they're focus groups or trainings that you've done in Brazil and Southeast Asia and the United States. Are the strategies different um, or the types of threats different in, in each of those regions and the concerns different given that the technology is quite different, the access to technology is quite different in different places? Yeah, and I, and I think the key for us was to start this work and to decenter the US and Europe right, they're important, right, they have also many vulnerable populations and rights activists and journalists, obviously, in the US and Europe. Because of the nature of this, because it tends to become a Silicon Valley, DC, Brussels discussion, that we really need to center the communities of in the regions where Witness works. And so Witness works in, yes, in the US, but also in Brazil, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East and North Africa and Asia. Uh, so we deliberately started bringing together people in those regions, not just activists who worked with us, right? We know that they're really important. Many of them are leading activists on the rights issues they care about. But we also brought a range of people who had what we described as lived practical and professional experience right. of similar problems. And that's also the important thing is like if you don't want to wait till everyone has deep fakes all around them to ask what are the harms from false information? What are the ways right. the state targets activists? What are the ways people target women in the public space? And so we brought people together and these convenings, and they were typically like 25 or 30 people pre-COVID and then a lot of online work in, in workshops and trainings during COVID uh, of like 25 or 30 people who had come together from social movements, human rights, journalism, fact-checking, and say, what is it that we see as potential harms from this shift in the, in the technology landscape and what do we prioritize as solutions? And there are some commonalities. In fact, we just did a meeting in Nairobi that also reinforced some of these these concerns, but also brought some new ones because the landscape is changing fast, right? As we know, like with ChatGPT and MidJourney and everything. Some of the things we've consistently heard is a concern that the hype around this focuses too much on like high level politicians, but not on local journalists, human rights activists, like the whole rich level of civil society that isn't just, you know, President Biden or right. former President Trump or someone like this, who probably will be quite well protected in these scenarios. It's in fact, the rest of our societies who are vulnerable to being targeted because they're already targeted on the basis of race, of gender, of sexual orientation, historical marginalization, right? Like that we have to really center those communities and they're the ones who already face similar harms from, from the similar problems that exist right now. The other thing that's pretty consistently we heard is, and it's become a reality as people saying, it's a deep fake about a particular piece of content, right? Say there's an right. audio that is compromising or a video or a photo that shows state abuse. They can turn around and say it's a deep fake and they put all the pressure on rights activists and journalists who lack resources yeah. to do the verification to try and prove that something's real so that's one thing we've heard and then the other is and i think this is starting to grow in momentum is that there's just a general way in which it may not just be about a single piece of video right you're not saying that single act of police violence that someone filmed on video is not true you're saying you can't believe anything because anything could be faked, right? The machines are lying to us, right? There's just a general sort of undermining of trust that this contributes to that directly impacts the people who have the hardest time being trusted because yeah. they're challenging power. So those are pretty consistent. And then there's one other thing that also came through really strongly in particularly in, this, in Nairobi, but also in previous work we've done across Africa and, and in other regions, but I hear it really strongly in this last meeting in Nairobi is kind of re reminding that it's the state 
that is it's the governments it is your own state that is often targeting you um, in recent elections it's the state circulating deceptive image it's the state that's often closely linked to the sort of attempts to target civil society and so there's this whole effort that is about reducing civil society and journalism and you know repressing the space available and that these tools fit into that right and so the big message for a lot of people is don't sort of decontextualize or dehistoricize this don't turn it into this kind of tech thing ground right. it really clearly in these existing dynamics absolutely we're rapid response organizations so how do you see this evolving and what can we do to really help these organizations like ours that are trying really very hard to push authoritarian governments to provide uh, policies that are fair and just and equitable to people within really constraining environments. The first thing I'll say is I think the changes, the technological changes, and I don't want to center things overly on technology. I want to do exactly what you're saying is like, as activists, how do we place this in the existing challenges? But the technology changes are making it harder. So probably good to think about those first and then some of the ways in which activists and digital activists and, and journalists and other people who form part of civil society and the media can respond. One of the things we were talking about in Nairobi, and we're going to do other workshops globally, and so hopefully there'll be members of Open who can be part of these workshops in the future as well. One of the things we were talking about was the shifts that have happened, and obviously people have seen ChatGPT and MidJourney and DALI2 and all of these tools that are exploding, and there are some characteristics to them that make some of the ways in which they can be misused more prominent. So, you know, some characteristics that are, you know, pretty obvious on the face of it, right, is we've gone from it being mainly quite limited niche tools to quite open, commercialized, easy to use tools, right? And so in our workshop in Nairobi, we were getting people as part of an exercise to think how to generate deceptive images of human rights events, right? And it took people about 10 minutes to generate, you know, deceptive images of perhaps a police arrest or a forced eviction. And then, of course, to do things like an there's Midjourney is one of these photo text to photo tools, right? You can use to generate a photo from a sentence and you can just press variant as a button on it and you just mm. generate like more and more. So you have this ability to create volume right now with these tools. And you also will increasingly have the ability to kind of personalize them, right? To make them respond to personal circumstances. And the reasons this is problematic for our world is, you know, we're not well equipped to deal with a lot of deceptive images that might target individual activists, might target movements. We're not well equipped to deal with a volume of deceptive audio that might pretend to impersonate people because we don't really have the tools to to detect it. We don't have the ability to respond to scale to all of these, you know, essentially lies that could be created with these tools. And one of the fundamental problems, and I, this is sort of depressing in some way to sort of right. say it, is that really that there aren't many good existing solutions for, say, a frontline activist to deal with, you know, for example, someone puts out a deceptive image of you involved in a supposed scene of corruption or a deceptive audio implying misconduct or a um, non-consensual sexual image created without your consent that is perhaps shared privately to humiliate you with the the possibility of moving it into the public space. Right. And the reason there aren't these good tools is like in some of those cases, it doesn't really matter if you can prove it wrong, right? Like a non-consensual sexual image is not really whether it's true or false or whether you can detect it. It's, you know, it's a harmful attack irrespective of whether you can sort of unpack the pixels. And then with the other ones, like a deceptive image of, of, of say, an, a corrupt event or a deceptive audio, there aren't good tools to detect that that are available to civil society. And one of the things that we've really emphasized is that we can't place the blame on individuals and activists for not 
being able to respond to this, right? We can't say it's your fault that you can't detect a deceptive audio or identify a deceptive AI image. We've really got to say, yes, make sure the tools are available to frontline activists and digital activists to be able to do that detection. But the responsibility has got to lie far further up the pipeline of how these tools are built and shared and created. Yeah, so accountability. Talk yeah, to me accountability about that. To, yeah, we got to, otherwise it becomes this blame game. Like we've seen right. the sort of the blame game already, even on us as individuals, right? You know, like in the last couple of months, you know, we had that AI image of the Pope in a puffer jacket and the amount of Twitter threads that were sort of chastising people for not recognizing it as AI. It's just ridiculous, right? The AI is going to improve its yeah. ability to create images, audio interactions. So we definitely have got to push the accountability up the chain, right? And yes. this is what we heard as well in all our global workshops. People are like, don't place the pressure on us, right? We're already under pressure. We don't have the capacity. It's not fair. It's not just to place all the pressure to deal with these technology shifts on the people who are most vulnerable. So we can push the responsibility up the pipeline. And as a general principle, it's you know a couple of things that we've really been trying to think about it from the witness perspective. One is you have to go right back to sort of the models and the tools and the apps and the distributors, right? So that's all the way from the people who build these so-called foundation models, which are the mm -hmm. what lies behind ChatGPT or Bing search or... Um, and then we also have to look at the people who deploy them in ways. So that would be like a mid-journey, a chat GPT, a stable diffusion, someone building a chatbot of some sort. And then you have to look at the people who choose to distribute this media, which could be a social media platform or it could be media. And then you get to us and right then it's hopefully there have been safeguards and guardrails and red lines that are all the way through the pipeline, but that they've also built in like signals that could help us. Right. So to give an example, one of the things that we heard and have done a lot of work on over the last 10 years. And in fact, this is work that came out of the human rights community a decade ago was like, how do you know if a piece of media is real, right? And I'm sort of using scare yeah. quotes at the moment. <laughs> and we did it initially groups like Witness and the Guardian Project and Eyewitness to Atrocities for like war crimes evidence, right? How could you prove like a video or a photo hadn't been manipulated? And in the last years, we've seen this become more mainstream. So there have been groups like Adobe and Microsoft and and witness, you know, trying to think, how do you create an infrastructure that allows people to understand where a piece of media came from? Like, for example, that it was AI generated, how it was edited, how it came to you. Right. That's not the same as saying necessarily Sam made the piece of media. Right, right, right. Something but was how? made with mid journey. Right. Not right. Who, but how? And to do that well, you've got to have that embedded through the pipeline. And then you, you or I, when we saw a piece of media in our timeline, right, say TikTok or, you know, Twitter or whatever it might be, would have much better clues. But that relies completely on that on that pipeline of responsibility right you know has to go all the way back through that 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 chain right now we can't do much about it because it is what it is right we can hold folks accountable we can try to train ourselves on how to deal with it but we can't really get to the source necessarily how do we live with the internal disruption that it brings for us yeah. internally for example let's just talk about chat gbt yeah so internally we can see that maybe instead of writing an email, a rapid response email in six hours, we can do it in half hour. So it might be a good thing, right? It might have some implications whereby our campaigners now are really, if it's done right, if it's used right, our campaigners will be able to focus on skill, sort of like the, the strategy rather than writing, right? Um, so writing will be less essential. But the nightmare scenario is that organizations like change.org or others will fire their entire campaign staff so, yeah. or, you know, and just say, okay, everything automated. And sort of that strategy piece is, is lost. 
What are yeah. your thoughts on that? <laughs> I, I think it's I think we're in, a, in the middle of trying to work out what is the right place for this as ethical actors right. and what's the right place to respond to unethical ways that this is going to be used by our opponents. Right. And I think trying to work out both of those is going to be key. I'll give an example from The Witness, sort of where we've been thinking about it to start with and then move into the space of kind of digital activism and movements. Sure. Like we've been talking a lot about fortifying the truth. And part of that is also to say that part of this also has to be how do we really work out how we protect true credible voices for example in our case of like real documentation and real stories of human rights yes you know and, and some of that might be might be technical right it might be like how do you robustly film in a way that's hard to claim it's been deep faked and some of it might be you know finding ways to creatively use the production tools of ai production to tell better stories about land rights struggles sovereignty climate justice right so i think there's something about you know how do we not give in to like this is all about misinformation disinformation right which is particularly true in the human rights space where there's such a emphasis on like the credibility of what we have i think when we move into digital activism i think there's you know a couple of sort of discussions first we need to be having pretty urgently one is like what are the ethics of the usage of this and when should people expect that we're using it and when shouldn't they and that can evolve but you can kind of see the the discussions happening and i remember two or three years ago actually having a conversation in a digital activism space where we were looking ahead to this and it felt so hypothetical right is like would you use ai generated images in an ad would you use uh, chat gpt to generate text and i think a lot of it is about disclosure and context Right. And so like a really good example is a couple last week, actually, Amnesty used uh, AI generated images in the context of a, a documentation report and advocacy. And the reason I think it aroused concerns and I was one of the people who was concerned by it when I saw it online was you don't expect that in a in a documentation report, you will see AI generated photos. You expect real photos right. that might be different from a mobilization uh, challenge that's about the future of the climate, where you want to visualize what the climate looks like in five years. And AI is a tremendous tool we've already seen to do that. Or you want to, another way that, you know, deep fakes have been used, you want to resurrect someone who was a champion of your cause and you do it with the consent of the family because they were murdered for the work they did and you want to bring them back to call to accountability. That's a really creative powerful contextualized use of AI that makes all kinds of sense to people because they're like, we know they're not here. They've been resurrected. We know that's not the climate future we've actually seen. But using like a real photo or something that passes at first glance as a real photo is in the context not applicable right now. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have a like an ethics and context question first that we need to mm -hmm. be pretty clear about as a, as a set of movements. And then we have a disclosure, which is like if we're doing this, what is the expectation and how do we tell people we're doing this, right? So this is our duty to the uh, our movements, our audiences right. first, right? It's like we need to disclose. And I think too much of the time disclosing at the moment is like a little line in the corner. Uh, and we've got to think of much better ways of like how you disclose in an image right. that it's manipulated and how you disclose in an interaction, right? Because that's the thing we're moving towards is synthetic agents. The idea that you're interacting with someone who talks to you as if you're real and they're real and they're personalizing their communication to you, but they're not real and they may not really be explaining they're real. And of course, we know that, right? Like if you go with the chatbot online right. and you've got a complaint about your airline ticket, you know, you know, that's not a real person that they're responding to it. But this is going to get much more sophisticated and personalized. So I think there's the internal disruption. I think we have to be candid about what is our duty to our audiences and our movements and where that we can't cut the corners. Right. So that's like where we shouldn't. Then we have to say, what are we doing that in our movements is self-sustaining for us, but is actually not true to our purpose, right? So if we're refusing to use a way that might make it easier to generate the kind of the bones of an email, that's probably a little bit 
I don't know what the right word is, not narcissistic, but it's a little bit like, why are we doing that as long as there's a human in the loop who really mm. helps think it through? And I think a lot of the concern here is, again, going back to ethics, right? If we're doing this in an automated way, if we're doing this with personalization, if we're doing this in a learning loop of a of a, an AI system that might learn an unethical way of persuading someone to take action, right? And so this is where I think there's also a real disadvantage to our movements is that like our opponents are going to use this in the most yes. unethical ways, right? So they're not going to label AI footage. They're going to deceive people with content. They're going to generate lots of narratives that are um, easily created, malicious, duplicitous. They're going to use AI agents in ways we won't expect. And so there's a real dilemma because we have to set these ethical boundaries that to me are a lot about context and disclosure and using the resources of our movements well, right? So not being like saying we have to protect our jobs at the expense of our action. At the same time as our opponents have plenty of options that are unethical, that you know can use all of these characteristics of the volume, the variance, the simulation of reality to deceive the same people we might be trying to engage with as well as other, other audiences we have around us. Well, I'm glad we have witness because, I mean, it's a huge learning curve. You know, we're in smack in the middle of it. And not only lives are at stake, like the human rights defenders that you help and you train and you support, but also democracy. You know, the rise of authoritarianism in several countries around Europe is a real thing. And now that we're in the thick of these types of um, technology threats, by the time we get to the elections next year, you know, it might be a completely different scenario than it is today. And I'm not trying to panic, but it's hard not to panic, right? It's it's hard yeah. to figure out how do you keep up? How do you make sure that of the very essence of democracy, let alone the lives of the people who are protecting democracy, are defended, are protected? What do you say to this? Within Witness, we've been talking about what our frame is, and I'm not sure it's prepare, don't panic. I think it's probably act on what we need to do, but don't panic because the panic plays into the, yes. the hyperbole, the risks it leans into the hands of the authoritarians who both want to use this but also pass laws about it that will be used to repress speech and repress civil society. So I do think we need to act. I think it's worrying looking ahead to elections that are coming up in the next two years globally in the EU yes. and in the US, the UK, many countries, right? We've got a lot of important global elections potentially in the next two years. And one of the things we it's hard to understand is that the pace that's happening now, right? Like I think there's a lot of shifts that have been faster, for example, in the kind of the generative AI as used to create images and video and audio. So we have a lot of kind of wild cards playing out. I think what that argues for and, you know, is, you know, I don't think it's very valuable. And I think we could waste a lot of energy as civil society chasing every little tech change. Yeah. And it's been what we've discouraged, even when we've talked to people about synthetic media and generative AI globally is like, you need to understand the landscape of this at a big picture in order to prioritize harms and threats and solutions, but you don't need to be in the weeds of like what happened this week with company X. Um, instead, I think we need to really have a shared set of first principles because there's a lot of regulation happening now. There's a lot of reaction that's happening now. There's a lot of companies rushing headlong. So probably the best protection for civil society in this and the best place is to say, how do we really argue for something that is foundationally human rights centered, right? Like, what are we doing here? What are we trying to protect? How do we do argue for something that's foundationally about responsibility through this pipeline so we're not blaming our activists or individuals? And how do we set our own standards internally so that at least we can show what it should look like to do this? And I think those are all actions we could take. And in some ways we can build on things, right? Like AI regulation is moving quite fast. 
Uh, the EU has got something in the EUAI Act that's likely to move forward in May, goes to the tripartite discussions. And in that, you've got the pipeline responsibility is actually sketched out in that. Now, will it be implemented in time for 2024 type elections? Will it be relevant to elections outside the EU in that time? I don't know. But I think those are places where as, as a set of activists globally, and, and I say that globally because I think we've got to make sure this isn't just benefiting, you know, activists in the US and Europe, but really, you know, many of the movements and rights activists that Witness works with and that Open is also engaged with globally. How do we really make sure that we're doing this together? Because, you know, one worry we also heard from a lot of the, the activists and journalists that we, we brought together over the last five years was you'll get EU or US moves that might help in the EU and the US, but will be irrelevant or misused globally they'll set the rules for us and we have governments we don't trust right it's not that we can trust every government in the eu right. or, as you've mentioned very clearly nor should we trust the u.s government uh, under any administration right we should always be cautious about um, the misuse of these technologies by government right. but but they said very clearly like make sure that as you pass regulation it it's well-meaning but actually matters and has the right impacts globally and a good example of that is actually all this discussion around tracking the authenticity of media, understanding the provenance, which is gaining momentum and makes sense, right? We're in a much more complex media world. But we've really got to argue that this legislation isn't about identity, right? Because identity is deeply privacy compromising to attach to media in uh, the global north in many contexts, would be right. likely to be weaponized in places like Hungary and Poland, and certainly is something you don't want to place in the hands of authoritarian governments globally, who might both pass laws, but also use extrajudicial surveillance to, to use that as a tool against their citizens. What can we be doing open and witness? Um, I know that you have tons of conversations happening. Our groups are in 20 countries around the world, in the global north and the global south. And I, when you were talking about the shifts in um, policy that might be happening in the EU, I, I was smelling a campaign. In addition to that, what can organizations like ours that do this type of rapid response within our respective countries support figuring out how we prepare or act on the technology threats of today. Yeah, I agree. It smells like a campaign. I'll, I'll take that <laughs> phrase to start with. I think there's definitely like accountability work that it needs to be driven from digital movements and activism globally. Um, and I think there's openings to do that and to really do that from a global perspective. So that that's one. I think from a rapid response, one of the challenges we've seen, and we've been doing it in a limited way around incidents of deepfakes and synthetic media is how do you quickly debunk them, right? For example, prove that a claim is that something is faked is not true or prove that something is faked. But there's also times when we're going to need to do that around figures in our spaces who are being targeted, right? And, and often it is about really challenging the lie that comes out, right? Because often the lie moves faster than the truth. And I think right. there's a real role for us to defend our leaders and our activists who are more likely to be targeted by this over time. So I think there's a rapid response that is about protecting our movements. And I think there's also a space which, where I would love to see collaboration between Open and, and Witness, which is, you know, as we're bringing people together in these this work that really constantly regrounds what are the priorities globally. You need to have in the room people who are coming out of the digital movement space, people who are coming out of very specific community activism, people who are trying to deal with journalistic challenges. And so I think the voices of digital movement activists are really important in those spaces um, to sort of say, well, how do we deal with the volume, the, the, the ways in which our activists are targeted? Because digital movements are operating in that space already. They're trying to think across large audiences of people, trying to think rapidly about narrative trying to really understand you know how to operate in these spaces that feel open right you know but are also deeply surveilled right so i think 
you know, trying to have those voices in the room is important. So I think all three of those are ways in which, you know, human rights groups like Witness that are really focused on these emerging technologies and, and networks like Open should be collaborating. That's fantastic. Well, thank you, Sam. And thank you and your team and Witness for doing all the work that you're doing around the world on this issue. This is, it's very timely. It's very needed. So thank you and Godspeed for everything that you do. Thank you. It was really good to be here. You've been listening to the Podcast for Democracy, brought to you by OPEN, the online progressive engagement network. Please subscribe and download this podcast and tell your friends. Also, feel free to rate and review the podcast, available on all podcast platforms. Find out more at the-open.net. That's the-open.net.